1: Everybody. welcome back to all new all different uncanny x's for podcast, where we examine the uncanny x-men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-title 80s expansion i'm your host jonah I'm Dylan. And I'm Kyle. And I'm Nico. And we hope you guys survive the experience. And what we're surviving
0: today is a real sad story. It's a happy sad story, but it's a sad story, I guess. There's really not a whole lot of ways you can talk about a story called God Loves, Man Kills without talking about the duality of it, the the power and the fact that we're still talking about a superhero comic book. One of the things that's so significant about this story is even Chris Claremont sees it as one of his crowning achievements and insisted on being credited as Christopher Claremont. You know, there's just something about adding that Christopher that makes it all much more polished, you know what I mean? Like Jonas Staffer and Kyle Staffer and Warpath Dylan Staffer. <laughs> they sound much more powerful when you add that stiffer to the end of everything. And so I get what he was going for here. Now, this is an unusual story in that not only is it a Marvel graphic novel, but it has a lot of weird to pin down exactly the continuity elements and I can't wait to talk about all of it. But before we can get into that, I want to talk for a minute with you guys about this sort of hyper-recognizability of humongous elements of this story and a lot of people don't even recognize them. Dylan, I know you're a big Buffy fan from way the fuck back. In fact, not only do you manage house of x but for a while you were parts of some buffy online groups and i know you've seen every episode had you ever recognized the parallels between the opening of gingerbread and god loves man kills before
2: i actually didn't think about it until when i read the issue for this episode because i had read the issue years ago but i needed to refresh my memory for this and the parallels it was yeah i was like oh did buffy take from this
0: Absolutely. Joss Whedon has said on more than one occasion that Buffy Summers herself is a combination of Kitty Pride and Scott Summers, down to that's where the name comes from. Now, for you, Kyle, had this been a new reading experience, or was God Loves, Man Kills something you read in your original read of the Marvel Universe? I've read this
3: before, and I'll be honest, reading it again, I had the same emotional reactions as the first time that I read it. I
0: agree. I think there's a really powerfully timeless quality about this story, and there's a number of triggering moments for my sake. I do not care for Claremont's use of the N-word, nor do I care for it coming out of a young white woman's mouth, and a young black woman agreeing with her that the sentiment of using the N-word at her was appropriate. I think all of that kind of falls back into that category we talked about on the New Mutants that made us all kind of itchy all over. But I agree with you, Kyle. The emotional resonance of this story is incredibly powerful. Now, I don't know if it's because we're, you know, big old. queer and so we connect with the mutant struggle. But even when it comes to the fictitious slur of mutie, that's not a term that people call each other in the real world, so it's not a term that we necessarily see as hateful, but it's so powerful, especially the way it's displayed on the back cover, that image of the child with the mutie sign on Chilling, absolutely. What's your relationship with that word, and the way it's turned into such a hateful slur in this?
3: Using the word mutie, it just really makes you feel like There's so much hatred behind them. And... I really... Yeah. Yeah. And I I can see reflections of it in our world. And it makes me uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. For,
0: For certain. And there are so many layers I can't wait to discuss in this book. But one of the things in this book that was tricky in terms of where to place it in the run or how exactly to talk about it is the book has kind of a questionable place in continuity. The Omnibus says that this falls squarely... After, Xavier tells Kitty that she's been demoted to a new mutant, but before the follow-up issue with Professor Xavier is a jerk, I don't know that I truly believe it fits in that location. Not to mention, Kitty's costume is a little bit off the wall, Ileana isn't particularly in any stage of ileana dumb Jonah, you're reading all of this for the first time. You're the new set of young eyes closest in age to Kitty, coming into this narrative. Telling this through the eyes of the youngest X-Man, except Ileana, because that's a really weird weird thing to try and parse. Did you feel a youthful connection, or did this feel like a bunch of old people telling you about racism?
1: Well, no, but yes. Maybe on the inside. I want to say it's a little bit of column A and column B. I do think this was a heavy-handed metaphor of racism, homophobia, whatever kind of bigotry against a marginalized group you want to make it out to be. I think it is, you know, an old white man telling me how I should feel about it. But also, I think Chris Claremont does write in a way where it's not always like that, and I think he does that well through the voice of Kitty. I don't think anyone... Actually, that's not fair to say. because I, it, my, I was going to say I don't think anyone writes Kitty as well as he does, but I've never read anyone else's Kitty. But I do think when Chris Claremont writes Kitty, and from everything I've seen, you know, Kitty's the it-girl and Kitty's the eyes we see most, if not all of our recent Uncanny issues through. I think Kitty reacts in a way to the situation in the way that a third 13-year-old would when they don't understand the nuances of bigotry. You know, she throws the n-word out, and I don't think she realizes the importance of your words in that even in context, and even if you didn't mean to say something like that, you have to be careful with your words. And I think through this experience, she learned that, and I also think she learned that the world isn't that much of a bright place for her kind you know i love everything you said there's just
0: one thing i'm going to interact with i don't believe anybody ever told her that using the n-word was wrong as a matter of fact something that we've been talking about a lot on this show is that we need every time a conflict is introduced we need some sort of rational conclusion provided the story is all about meeting expectations of bigotry or safety With their equal opposite. And we see that play out over and over again through the prologue, the epilogue, and each of the four chapters in between. But for my sake, I feel Kitty is never truly reprimanded for her liberal use of a word she has no claim to. And it's that frustration, it's that dissatisfaction with a team of white men telling a black woman how to feel about racism that, for my sake, is the only true failure of God Loves Man Kills. <laughs> God Loves Man Kill stands out as one of Claremont's most gripping works, and it's gripping for a number of reasons that made it feel like it really couldn't be in regular Uncanny. Uncanny X-Men, as a title, was forced to pull its punches in many regards because it had to adhere to the comic code, it was a regular monthly mag, and it was aimed at kids. But like we discussed when we discussed the New Mutants, Marvel graphic novels were intended to be a little bit more mature as a design element, and the art clearly reflects that. Before we we can even talk about the masterful work that is Claremont's writing on this title. I want to take a second and I want to point out the unusual quality that we're looking at here. Now, Kyle, I know that you're someone who loves expressive emotional art. You like being able to connect with your characters and I would say that this book in particular, with Brent Anderson, there is a strong emotional connection to these characters visually, facially, even how did you feel about the art and its expressive detail?
3: I thought that it was like you said it's it's incredibly expressive and the use like stuff like the use of shadow at in nighttime scenes and the way that light plays across characters' faces. It's just really well done. I agree. There is an element of
0: prestige to this collection. Definitely. Jonah, as the two voices on the New Mutants' regular stories with me, as well as the Uncanny X-Men, this fit into the heavy elements of realism that the New Mutants was hoping to pull into the story. I mean, the X-Men have spent so much time in space lately, it's hard to dwell on realism, but the New Mutants are hyper-obsessed. And this elevated it all to this adult place with murder by gunshot shot, and murdering children and murdering wives. Jonah, Dylan, for your guys' sake, what was it like with the X-Men stepping into the 1982 equivalent of the HBO version of
1: their own world? You know, the only thing we were missing was a sex scene, and then it really could have been an HBO special. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Reading this story And knowing the stories that came Before it and issues that came before it Yeah, this really was like a very Dark HBO version Like you said, of the X-Men And I know some people might Not like it, but it is Nice or refreshing to Every once in a while have a story For our heroes that doesn't Necessarily have a happy ending And I know when it comes to the X-Men They don't usually have happy endings anyway But this story is so real and was so relatable for so many people that and it's sad that we compare it to it being dark when it's really just the most relatable story just says a lot about society
1: i have to agree with dylan that this is the most relatable story at least what i've read so far and i think part of that makes it so much better is that that's kind of what the x-men are is they're relatable they're one of the great things about the x-men is that they're a metaphor for those who are marginalized but everyone can still see themselves in it. And I think having this very real story of these characters that are relatable to much more expensive audience than other superheroes who are just, you know, superhumans as opposed to mutants, I think, has the ability to set the bar for showing that, you know, you can have good times and you can have goofy beat-em-ups, but... Sometimes your art gets real, and you take it to a real place.
0: And I feel like we're still seeing the reverberations of this. You know, it it is such a relatable story, and it is such
1: a real story.
0: To suspend all things that are all things at this moment, four of these panelists are queer, and two of us are Latino. And it absolutely is an honest shock sometimes when we read these stories, and the whole world sort of says, how could people hate mutants for being born different? And it's such a confidant confrontation because I'm like how can you hate gay people for being born different and that it took comic books this extended metaphor over the course of 40 50 years where we eventually apex toward things like the legacy virus it's just so ridiculous that in the bright shining multi-tone color of a comic book black and white issues become incredibly clear but the moment we translate that fiction to non-fiction the gradient becomes greater than people can deal with and they begin to uncomfortably turn their heads and it's on that note that I can't help but see that this had to be one of the most influential works on Jonathan Hickman's House of X and Powers of Ten, without a doubt there is so much we talked repeatedly about how the New Mutants scenes in New Mutants echoed throughout Powers of Ten and House of X particularly in the Moira-Xavier dynamic that said I can't help but see continued parallels between Xavier and Magneto and their approaches to working with the X-Men in this story as it relates to the bigger narrative of Krakoa now Kyle you're someone I have not had the pleasure of reading good guy Magneto with, bad guy Magneto with, somehow you and I, in all of the X-Men and Champions we've covered, we covered that one really bad two-part Magneto story that we agree was too stupid to be real. The one where he's versus (laughs) Doom. very true. Right? So even if we, okay, let's suspend that for a second and we're like, no, okay, that was Magneto. We've read one really shitty Magneto story. This is such my Magneto. You know what I mean? It's that powerful figure that I feel reverberates throughout Jonathan Hickman's incredible reimagining of the X-Men. Do you see traces of that turning point for Magneto here, or do you feel that it comes at another time?
3: I definitely see traces of that turning point here. Uh, This Magneto shows a level of compassion towards other mutants that we really haven't seen, that as far as I remember up to this point,
0: we haven't seen. Well, to jump in on that, I can give you the one time he has shown that level of compassion, and it was just after Storm had shown him the same level of compassion. Jonah, when we We covered X-Men 150. We talk about the scene where Magneto realizes that he might have hurt Kitty, and he says to himself, she's a child. How can I do this? She's a child. I feel like that's maybe the closest thing to a moment of this level before this moment.
1: I found it really impressive that Magneto, in this situation, was able to put aside his differences with the X-Men and fight a common enemy. Magneto, up until this point, hasn't been too nuanced outside of his appearance in Uncanny X-Men 150, and we haven't really seen him since. But seeing him have the capability to at least recognize a greater threat requires teamwork with the people who he realizes won't share his ambition and he can't share their ambition is really nice and makes him a more well-rounded villain and a real character as opposed to how he was portrayed earlier.
0: Yeah, makes him a realer character. Now, Dylan, I know you're coming into this whole shebang a little bit late in the game, but you have a strong background. It's why you're coming in with such a natural... Natural fit. I don't think I've ever actually gotten your official opinion on this. I am a big fan of reformed bad guy Magneto. Where do you land on the Magneto spectrum?
2: I land on the spectrum of, I think he's just misunderstood, even before he's reformed. I, I like Magneto. I don't want people to think that I side with his early thoughts on humans. And even though it's kind of funny, the foreshadowing of what that means now in X-Men comics. But, uh, I like Magneto because I, I kind of feel like he's very misunderstood. He had that horrible life as a child during the Holocaust only to enter another awful life of being a mutant in a world of people that hate mutants. So I, feel like everything in his life has been played against him, or life has just been really freaking awful for him. I have always liked Magneto, whether he's reformed or not.
0: You know, for those of you who listen to Powerhouse, the feed we did covering Hickman's House of X and Powers of Ten, Dylan had come down very hard on this side of he supports villainous characters, but you had made it really clear that you have an issue with heroes taking too drastic a set of measures, so you are really laying out a contradiction of what it is you love about Magneto, you're very clear that it's not his cruelty and his violence, but rather it's the elements that come together to create his character. Now, it's going to seem like I'm trying to put off talking about the greatest X-Men story to come out of its possibly decade, but I actually have an interesting point that occurred to me this read for the first time ever. This story is bereft of a number of X-Men character mainstays who I feel would have dramatically altered the events of the, of the story. If you were to put Beast in, he would probably just play the Nightcrawler role or supplement the Nightcrawler role. But I've picked an X-Man for each of you that I'd be curious to know how you feel they may react, and please feel free to jump in on each other's. But Dylan, I would love to know, since you're such a big fan of hers, how would you feel if Jean Grey, the Phoenix, your favorite character in all of X-Men, nay, Marvel, nay, the universe, (laughs) how would you feel if Jean Grey, the Phoenix were in this story, how would she change the narrative, God Loves Man Kills?
2: Well, real quick, I want to clarify, do you mean just Jean or Jean Phoenix? I, I, I know you oh, said I both. mean Jean
0: Phoenix, your favorite thing, your absolute oh. favorite, Jean the Phoenix. I, I, I know f- how much you love her.
2: <laughs> I don't hate her. Um, anyway. Uh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm sorry, you know what? I thought I paid close attention, but I guess next time I'll just try harder.
2: Oh, That would make everyone, including Monet, very happy. Um, If Phoenix was in this story, I feel like as slightly different as the narrative is in this book, I... I feel like Jean would lose her mind, or the phoenix would lose its mind, and it would make Magneto look like a very nice guy, because I feel like Jean would eviscerate a lot of people. and model. I completely yeah.
0: agree. I, I don't see the phoenix holding back in the face of an entire—I I think the phoenix believes the phoenix is the only person allowed to commit genocide, so it would have a real problem with somebody encroaching in on its bitch-of-the-day territory. Green. Kyle, I'm so curious to know, because you've been reading these weird fringe of the X-Books, and you haven't exactly been on the main narrative, but I know a little bit about some of your favorite characters. And this is a little bit of an extreme example, but Iceman, at this time in canon, is aware he's gay, but he's forcing it down. If we go by today's current standard. Iceman missing from this story not only removes a mute who has always had passing privilege, But it removes a mutant with passing privilege who hid his homosexuality out of fear. One of the things I feel that Bendis' outing of Bobby got correct is that Bobby said he could either allow himself to be gay or mute, but the idea of being both is too much. And I think a lot of us can relate to being okay with being some part different and not all parts different. But for you, how would Bobby, hiding his homosexuality, what layer would that have added to either this story or to his character for you as a fan of the stronger iterations of the character? Mm. Hmm. Oh, boy.
3: Um, I always say oh, boy, don't I? That's why I
0: keep an (laughs) oh, boy at the ready. (laughs) Like, if this was a keyboard and I've programmed sounds for everybody, yours is definitely a Kyle-style Mickey Mouse-esque oh, boy. (laughs) Dylan, it's an irritated sigh that I have misrepresented his feelings about one character or another. (laughs) And for Jonah, it is, of course, always having... I mean, I just couldn't even program one for Jonah because I can't always have a pun ready on a keyboard, so...
3: (laughs) I'm not really sure how a closeted Bobby would really react to this. I would assume that him seeing all of these reactions to people who are different would bring up his walls more i'm thinking this is this is going to be bad i'm worried that the circumstances might make him freeze
0: Oh, God. For a second, I was like, emotionally? Oh, oh, no. I said, Jonah's got the puns. You're supposed to be the oh boy breaking the (laughs) rules here. But I do get what you're saying. Yeah, I think he would emotionally lock up in a lot of ways. You do come to see Iceman go through a lot of really rough stuff. And that's, it's just the name of the game for these mutants with their internal lives in the face of these external struggles. Jonah, this story lacks a number of mutants you've come to hold near and dear. And a few of them that come to mind are the villains you've amassed in your heart. At this point in canon, Emma is openly around, while Apocalypse and Mr. Sinister are running around underground. Your reaction to these villains has been one of the highlights of House of X and Powers of Ten for me. And neither one of these Xavier-level entities are here. So I guess I was wondering, how would you feel if they made room in this story for an apocalypse, a Mr. Sinister, Mystique, or Cassandra Nova?
1: hmm it would be really interesting because a lot of these villains i don't know if all of them would be able to pull up magneto and fight the greater enemy and i think that's part of why magneto is the only villain showcased in this is that the the point of this issue god loves man kills is that the greater enemy is the spread of hatred and misinformation if this also included you know an apocalypse and mr sinister mystique or cassandra nova i actually think that they would only they would basically pull a kurt you know kurt was singled out that because he's of his demonic fuzzy elf appearance he's not considered human and the characters you just mentioned those villains none of them look human except for maybe cassandra nova but that depends on if she's urn store gelatinous gloop or whatever I mean, let's face it, Frank, Frank Quietly on his best day draws
0: most people like gelatinous goop because that's how he expresses people. It's not a bad thing. It's very artistic. But yeah, even on a good day, Frank Quietly's people don't look like people. (laughs)
1: <laughs> but I, I think that that's kind of, they would have to serve a function similar to that. They would have to be singled out and pointed at saying, you think that's a human, what gives them the right to coexist with us when they look like that or when they can do that? It's amazing because it's almost verbatim, the things you just said, that come to be the adaptation
0: of this in X2's dialogue. This story was adapted heavily into X2. Where you see Stryker trying to get a Cerebro mind to target Mutes and Xavier's involved, only his son is like vaguely a little bit sort of Legion, and it's not quite right, and I don't love it, but it's fine, it's fine, fine. And you also see sections of it show up in Days of Future Past in the form of the battle at the stadium. And there's even elements of the train scene elsewhere. So, man, they were really just trying to milk this special for everything it was worth. All over the live adaptations of the x ex- franchise. I think if I had to wonder about a character's place in this would really change things up. It would be my precious Ascani son himself, Cable. We are getting very close to the point at which Cable enters the narrative, and I am getting very excited. We are in 1983-1984 right now, so things are starting to heat up and get pretty exciting. (laughs) It seems like we've talked so much about God Loves Man Kills that this is going to be one of those magical Satu parters. Until we come back to take a look at the actual page count of God Loves Man Kills, Kyle, where can everybody find you online?
3: You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. How about you, Dylan?
2: everybody can find me on facebook at my x-men facebook group that is called house of x and you can also find me on instagram at warpath underscore dylan that is warpath underscore d-y-l-a-n jonah 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 where can everybody find you
1: running my own televangelistic show where i preach about the teachings of i don't know something funny insert something funny there you can actually find me on twitter and instagram <laughs> at jonah and at jonah.rubino nico where can everybody find you you guys can find me all all over the
0: cage club with my theme work appearing on shows like Too Fast, Too Forever, or my voice on things like Now and Again, where I talk about pop music with my childhood best friend Chris Podcasts. Don't forget to check out HTML, Husband's Talking More or Less, which I do with my amazing husband, Kevo, who is Jonah's phenomenal boyfriend, where we talk about sci-fi franchises. If you like what you heard here, you might enjoy the other feeds of X's for Podcast. so don't forget to check those out, or me on Instagram, where I'm usually half-naked at Action, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Alright, until we're back to defend mutant kind against hateful humanity. We'll see ya. See ya.
2: Bye. Bye -bye.